Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Football Hall of Famer, James Lofton. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I'm joined by an eight-time Pro Bowler and a Pro Football Hall of Famer. Please welcome current NFL broadcaster James Lofton. James, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, see that light round of applause going there? I love it. I love it. Uh, we're both we're both Pac-12 guys. You're a Stanford guy. I'm an SC guy. Now, my dad is a Stanford grad, and I don't hear the end of it. Are you guys really, do you think, or, or, or do you think it's it's true? Are you guys just smarter than the rest of us in the pack? Uh, I don't think so. Because <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd always go to that sunken diamond field, and I'd be thinking, these guys yeah. think they're smarter than me. No. You know, it's funny. I, I think that the athletes that go to Stanford – are, yes, they are well-rounded, and as you know, when you look at a collegiate roster, it doesn't matter if it's baseball, basketball, or football, a very, very small percentage of those guys are going to play professionally. So once you get to that collegiate level, you, you better be thinking about pro sports as your fallback position, not your main objective. Right, because I I had a couple of buddies when I was at SC, and I had a couple of buddies that went to Stanford, and I, we'd be playing against them. I'd look at them. I how'd you get here? How'd you get to Stanford? I know the criteria, and it is, and it is. Back yeah. when I was coming to school, it wasn't like like it is today for the kids. I mean, it seems like if you're just a normal student nowadays, you got a four That's not enough. But as an athlete mm-hmm. back in in the late '80s, you know, I could get into SC with my grade point average or the B average, and you had to be a little higher for Stanford. But but uh, you know, I, I had a couple of buddies on that team. I'm like, how did you get into this school? And they just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Once a cardinal, always and and my dad, he went there, and he he's always telling me. Uh, I had a son that went to Princeton, so now he kind of one upped my dad. So they have battles back and forth. <laughs> what what is the more prestigious academic academic school? So anyway, James Lofton, you're boarded uh, Fort Ord, California. When I when I first saw that, I said Fort Ord. There's a there's a tough golf course up there. I played a few times, but you were born there. What was what were you like as uh, as a little kid? So and it, and it is funny because you mentioned the golf course. My wife arranged for me to play Pebble Beach with my best friend that I grew up with, Kevin Turner. We'd known each other since third grade, and it was a surprise. And I'm driving by where Fort Ord used to be at about 6 a.m. 50 years after I was born at about 6 a.m. that same time. So, uh, you know, as a kid, like you said, I I was a kid. I was a little bit of a a military kid, Um, you know, played all the sports like uh, most kids do, played baseball, what was decent at that, played basketball, couldn't really shoot, played flag football and then Pop Warner football and gravitated toward to that along with track and field. But as a kid, I was also the member of a single parent family. 
my dad ended up with the four kids when he and my mom got divorced and he was still on military time. So much so to the point that on Saturday mornings we had inspection and we had to have that bed made so tight that he would bounce a dime off of it. And if it bounced up more than like five inches, you got to keep the dime. I later found out that actually in the military, they used a silver dollar. Well, my dad was so frugal with his money that he used dimes instead of a silver dollar. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you that I I need some of that upbringing for my kids. I think about it all the time. How do you think being a part of him? Because your dad was a military officer. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that comes with probably a lot of moving around. Uh, you know, we'll get to that as, as, as the show goes on. But what do you think? How did it affect you growing up in that type of atmosphere? I'm sure it was very disciplined. And I know your dad was a, a big fan of yours and, and your siblings. He loved to watch you go, uh, you know, when you were out on the field competing. Um, but but how do you think that affected you, that type of upbringing you, you just spoke of? I thought it was, was positive. I really did. Um, it, it was tough when my parents got divorced because I was the youngest of four and I was going into the third grade at the time. So I didn't understand why people got divorced or why my parents were getting divorced. So that part of it was, was difficult because I, I remember getting into like shoving matches on the uh, schoolyard and somebody would say something about your mom or something like that and say, well, I don't have a mom or my mom's dead. And she really wasn't dead. And I did have a mom, but she was all the way in Philadelphia. And here I was growing up in Los Angeles. And there was really no communication between the two of us. Um, The last time I saw her, I was getting on a plane from Philadelphia. We were flying to Los Angeles where my dad had retired from the military, found a house for us. And then the next time I saw her, I was a freshman, a sophomore in college. And I was running in the uh, NC2A track meet back at the University of Pennsylvania. Wow. Obviously, yeah. you know, obviously you were, you were big in track and field and you did that in college along with football um, as a young kid. And, and as I was doing my prep work, uh, I saw Pop Warner, you're a quarterback, you're a defensive tackle. And then I'm, I'm reading <laughs> on, and then I'm reading on, you get to high school, you're a quarterback and a safety and I'm thinking, how does that translate into a Hall of Fame wide receiver? <laughs> but but obviously it had to be an interesting an interesting trek for you to go through that. You went to George Washington High School in, in Los Angeles. You're a quarterback and a safety. How does that go? For, how do you go from that? How do you, first of all, how did you get to Stanford? And when you got there, were you no longer a quarterback or or did they make you a wide receiver? How did that work? Well, I'm going to backtrack to to the Pop Warner football because I played okay. two years of Pop Warner before I got to uh, you know the high school level. I played in the seventh and eighth grade, and I played defensive tackle. And the team that I played defensive tackle on the first year was the Baldwin Hills Trojans. And Warren Moon, Hall of Famer Warren Moon, was a quarterback on our team. He was on the podcast. I had him about was, two months he ago. The, he, he was the second string quarterback on that team. <laughs> Wow. You got you got to remember if your dad's not coaching, you're not going to get one of the plum positions to play. <laughs> right. And we were we were a team that made it all the way to the uh championship game. I I still remember the game we lost to El Cerrito 8 to 6. And we had only given up 18 points 
in the previous 10 games. And we lost that last ball game. And, uh, you know, Warren and I laugh about it, the fact that he was playing backup quarterback and I was the defensive tackle. But we had a lot of good athletes on that team. I think out of about 25 kids, we had about five kids who ended up in NFL training camp at some time. So that was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, but as I progressed into high school, I did get to play quarterback. My, my team wasn't great, um, but our team did improve while I was playing there. And Stanford came down to look at a big defensive tackle from Fremont High School. Fremont was kind of our biggest rival. Uh, Ricky Bell had played there, who ended up being uh, with USC and was first-round pick with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And um, so we're playing against Fremont. And that game, you know, I played quarterback. I played safety. I kicked off. I punted. Uh, we did lose. It was my homecoming. But I believe that the track coach was also – who was Peyton Jordan, who had been the head coach of the 1968 Olympic track team, the most decorated Olympic team ever. Peyton Jordan had written me a letter saying that I was on their radar because I was one of the top six long jumpers the year before my junior at the state meet. So, you know, they probably send those letters out to every kid, but they had contacted me. And then once the coach came down and watched me play a little bit, he dug into it a little bit more and saw that, Hey, we, we got maybe two chances to get this guy on campus. One as a football player and the second as a track and field athlete. And so in an era when if you were a good athlete, you could take 20 trips, to uh, in your on your recruiting visits, I took three. I went to Colorado, New Mexico, and Stanford. And I chose Stanford because they were the only school out of those three that said I could run track and play football. Colorado told me that once I became a starter on the football team, that I could be on the track team. And uh, New Mexico didn't even have that discussion with them. But Stanford was, was the perfect place for me because it allowed me as a kind of a late bloomer to develop as a track and field athlete as I grew as a football player. Yeah, and, and the name Peyton Jordan, I, I know, I think he was he was mentioned in your, in your Hall of Fame speech, obviously had a big influence on you. And when I started thinking about the NFL, the position you played, wide receiver, track and field, how, how it it's almost like why doesn't every football player or, or someone that's right. destined for the NFL wouldn't it, it makes sense to you gotta run track and field. It would seem like they would they would kind of coexist. Like the better you were, the the more you train track and field, it would help your football game. Did you find that in your case? It it, it certainly did for me. Um but what's interesting, and I, and I know this about football coaches because I ended up being one for a short period of time, is that you want to be hands-on with that football player, and you want him at spring practice. You want him lifting weights specifically for football as opposed to running track, but you also want him faster. And, and you're going to get faster if you're on the track team, but you're not going to maybe be as finely skilled as they might want you as a defensive back or a wide receiver or maybe even an offensive lineman who's a great shot putter and discus thrower. I'm going to toss out the name Jonathan Ogden, who's a Hall of Famer, went to UCLA, another pack. I always say pack eight school. because that's what uh, It was a pack six for baseball <laughs> but, for me, but I'm forced to say pack 12. 
myself. <laughs> All right, exactly. go ahead. And so Jonathan Ogden was a great shot putter and discus thrower at UCLA and was a Hall of Fame uh, offensive tackle, one of the best offensive tackles ever. So the, the two can coexist. If, if you have coaches who, who aren't so uh, obsessed with, you know, just doing football. Uh, it was funny. Uh, Daryl Royal was a legendary coach at the University of Texas. And he said there are two sports in the state of Texas, football and spring football. And he didn't, he didn't care for anything else. He didn't care if you were a basketball player, a track guy, or baseball. He said two sports, football and spring football. And, and that is the way a lot of coaches think. But, you know, you, you want a kid who's well-rounded, who maybe isn't at his peak as a football player, a baseball player, a basketball player when he comes out of high school because he was dabbling in all three. So he's going to get better and improve more when he gets to the collegiate level. You mentioned that you were a late bloomer. Well, first of all, who, who turned you into a wide receiver? Or was that kind of naturally you just kind of th – that was your position, kind of the writing was on the wall. But who was the first guy that's – you're going to be a wide receiver? Well, I, I, had a, I did have a big arm. And so just in terms of distance – you know, throwing distance, I could throw the ball further than every quarterback that we had on the roster. Um, when I got to Green Bay, we had this long throw contest, and, and it almost looked like a javelin event because you're, you're going to run up 10 yards and then chuck the ball as far as you can. I won that two years in a row. One year, it was 82 yards. The next year, it was 88 yards. So, you know, that having a big arm, but you asked about – the switch from quarterback to wide receiver. Well, first they sampled me on defense. And then I got to play offense. And this is all during uh, early ball, you know, which during the fall. So they sampled me at both of them and said, okay, you're, you're going to stick at receiver. But it was kind of a slow grind. But we had a freshman football team, which was great for me because I got to play six or eight games. I can't remember exactly how many. And that freshman team that we had, we rolled over everybody. I mean, we were scoring 50, 60 points. And I go back and I look at that freshman team. We had Steve Bills, who played quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. We had another kid, another receiver, who was absolutely terrific. We had an offensive lineman, Gordon King, who was the 10th player picked in the draft the same year. I was the 6th player picked in the draft. And we had a bunch of running backs who were really good. And we also had some upperclassmen on it. But... We played some junior colleges. We played Cal twice. The first time we scored 50 points against them. The second time we played them, we had we scored 82 points against them. So we had some talent on that uh, freshman JV team. Oh, I forgot about that too. Back back then, you I, I, and I think the rule was you had to play freshman football, right? Even if you were ready to step in and be. Well, I think the, go ahead. the year before they allowed they allowed freshmen to play. So you oh, okay. still had a lot of these schools that were still having a freshman team because, you know, one or two guys might play as opposed to now, you know, guys, if you don't guarantee them a starting spot when they're a freshman, they're going to go someplace somewhere else. I know you were excelling in uh, track and field. You're 26, 26 feet, 11 inches and three quarter for the, the track and field championship in 78. But you're there. Were you at this point? Were you there to be a football player, and you knew you were going to the NFL? So, so let's go back to maybe my sophomore year. 
My okay. sophomore year, I, I caught, I think, three passes. And, um, you know, and at the same time, I was like third in the nation collegiately in the long jump. So I was in the top three, uh, went to the Olympic trials, just missed making the Olympic team where I played. I, I came in fifth place. The top four made the team. The fourth was the alternate. So I was real close there. But I, I didn't have this vision of what it was going to be like when I graduated. You know, because I'm just trying to get on the field, to scratch my own on the field. I was on the putt coverage team. I was on the kickoff coverage team. I returned kickoffs a little bit. Uh, so th- there was no flashing light that said NFL around this guy. And then my junior year, I played a little more. My senior year, the big event, Bill Walsh comes in. Bill Walsh of the San Francisco 49ers and multiple world championships. He becomes our head coach. And he has this meeting with the players. He gets everybody together. We go to Maples Pavilion which is the basketball arena. I'm not sure how he got in touch with everybody because there were no cell phones, no pagers or anything like that. So word of mouth, you know, we're going to have a meeting with the new coach and everybody come down there. And, and if you remember the comedian, Jonathan Winters, he I had do. this like little crazy sense of humor. That was Bill Walsh. I mean, here he is, he's talking to the team and he says, you know, we're not going to have a dress code when we travel. We, we won't wear a suit and one of those, you know, red blazers. But if you're going to wear those bib overalls, make sure you wear a T-shirt underneath. That was the first thing out of his mouth. And and you, he just went on after that. And, and so he just lightened the mood. And about two weeks later, he came down to the track because it was track season. And he, and he, and he said to me, he said, who'd you piss off? I said, what do you mean? He says, how come you haven't been starting? You know, I said, well, you know, season would end, I'd be second team. And then spring practice happened. And then the next fall, I'd be third team. And I said, this kind of just happened every year because I didn't play spring practice, didn't play that. So he said, no, that's all going to change. He says, there's a receiver that I coached by the name of Isaac Curtis with the Cincinnati Bengals brought me up to his office. He showed me some film on him. He was the first person who believed in my football talent more than I believed in it. And to kind of fast forward it, we play the very first game of the year. We travel to Colorado. I go up against Otis McKinney. Otis McKinney is going to end up being a second-round pick with the then Oakland Raiders, one of the top cornerbacks in the country. I'm going to be a first-round pick, one of the top receivers in the country. My stat line at the end of the game was zero catches, zero yards, zero touchdowns. And I'm sitting in the locker room, kind of, you know, got my elbows on my knees and just thinking about the game because we did win the game. And Bill Walsh comes up, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he goes, hey, don't worry about today you'll have a game where you catch a dozen passes. Brett, I had caught a dozen passes my entire junior year. I had 12 catches as a junior. Now, he's, he's behind me, so he can't see me rolling my eyes when he says, you're going to catch a dozen passes. Fast forward, we play the University of Washington. They have a great cornerback, Nesby Glasgow. He's going to play for the Indianapolis Colts. 
He's going to be a third-round pick. That game, I have 12 catches, 192 yards, and three touchdowns. So here's somebody, like I said, that believed in my talent before I knew anything else about it. So he was probably the most instrumental coach that I had. Now, Peyton Jordan was great because he, he always said I'd win a national championship, which I did. And so it's funny when, when – and what I learned as a coach when I was a position coach, you've got to speak positive things about your players. You can't bash guys and expect them to do exceptionally well. You know, yeah, yeah you want to correct them. You want to motivate them. But you also want to give them a high standard. So – once again, Bill Walsh, I get drafted. I go to Green Bay. I see it in the newspaper where Bill Walsh says, by the middle of the season, James Lofton is going to be one of the top five receivers in the NFL. Whoa. Doesn't he know that Lynn Swan and John Stallworth and all these other guys? And so it, it was an interesting uh, journey from high school quarterback and safety to being an NFL receiver. It's pretty cool though, because, you know, I've had a ton of guys on the, on the program and, and some were just like, just like you said, you know, I had a coach that believed in me more than myself. I had guys who were complete yeah. opposite that, that they had uh, ridiculous amounts of confidence and, and a lot of humble pie to come. But, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, Bill, Bill Walsh was kind of the, yeah, I was kind of the latter, you know, I was that guy that I'm the greatest in the world. It just asked me. And, you know, a month into the, my big league, my first time I got called up to the big leagues, I'm sitting in my locker going, this is really hard, you know, but it's just kind of yeah. that stumbling blocks and, and the stuff we've got to go through to, to keep going on in our, and, and what we do. Bill Walsh, that's kind of, he was the, that's when he was, uh, you know, Bill Walsh is, is referred to as the genius. You got him before he was the genius, Yeah, but I, we, we I could only, I could only guy. imagine though, <laughs> you know, you, you had mentioned you'd never caught, you'd caught 12 passes your whole junior year. You'd never yeah. even thought about catching 12 passes in a game. This guy gives you a pat on the, on the shoulder pads after the game going, Hey kid, I know you had zero receptions today for zero yards and zero touchdowns, but you're going to catch 12. And then the next game you catch 12, you had to look at, at Bill Walsh go, who are you? <laughs> and, and you, you got to remember that we're, we're talking about an event that happened 45 years ago. And, and to this day has had a huge impact on my life and on the way that I kind of look at sports. You know, got the chance to coach, got the chance to be a broadcaster, got a chance to be a dad who's had kids who are playing. And so the way that I kind of look at how you help somebody is how Bill Walsh helped me. And, and that's, you know, and that, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And and sometimes that's easier said than done. But, you know, I just look at some of the, the guys that I got to coach, and I, I hope that I was able to speak that positive about them and still push them because Bill Wall still pushed us. He, make no mistake about that. But his ability – and I kind of watched him when he was with the 49ers, and not that that happened to a lesser degree, but as that team started to win Super Bowl championships – and I talked to a few players who were on those teams, he kind of sharpened his knife a little bit in terms of the, the comments that he'd give out. You know, he was a little tougher on the team because of what they had accomplished, 
and what he wanted them to continue to accomplish. That's that's very cool, though. I mean, because, you know, I'll, I'll go yeah. back to what I said earlier. It, you had to be looking at him, you know, as a college senior that had never done that before and <laughs> thought, how did he know that was going to happen? Then all of a sudden, you know, you guys go to the Sun Bowl in 77. I believe you win that. Uh, yeah. And then that next next thing you know, it's the draft. You're the sixth overall pick by the by the Packers. And now you've got your beloved coach. uh during an interview saying James Lofton is going to be one of the best wide receivers in the game. You almost have to think, well, if Bill said it, of course I'm going to be, I mean, that had to give you a boost. <laughs> that had to be a boost. Like everything coach says comes true. So hell, I'm going to be a great receiver. And and that panned out too. You're, you're, uh, you're on the all rookie team. You're, your first year in 1978 playing for Bart Starr, And uh, you're kind of off to the races. The question I had for, you know, because Green Bay is, you know, I, I, I'm i a fan of all sports. I'm a fan of sport. You know, I pay closer attention to baseball, obviously. Um, but I do. And the, the whole Green Bay thing, you know, fascinates me with the cheese heads and the cold. It's always yeah. so damn cold there. And what hit me was, all right, here's James Lofton growing up in California, going to high school in Southern California. And now all of a sudden you're playing, you're playing on the tundra in Green Bay. Was that a was that a shock to you, or or was that hey that's what the NFL is? Us baseball players we're wimps. We play in the summer. You know we might be a little cold in Chicago in April or Detroit if we catch a cold game. If it gets too cold, they'll they'll cancel the game. There's none of that in the NFL. How's it going from kind of born and raised in California, and now you're in Green Bay? I, I think in in any sport you have that moment where okay, I've got to measure up under the toughest circumstances. And, you know, you were talking about sports, and as we were growing up, and I'm a little older than you, I didn't grow up in the era of ESPN where, or the era where you had multiple games on television. You know, baseball had the game of the week. In the NBA, there was probably one game on each week in the NFL, you saw one game, even growing up in Los Angeles, you might just see the Rams or you might see somebody from out of town. So you didn't have multiple teams, but what you had is you had an aura of, of who the great teams were in basketball. It was John Wooden with UCLA in, in football. It was John McKay and the USC Trojans in basketball. It was kind of the Boston Celtics and the Lakers going, going at it. In baseball, you, the Dodgers were a great team, and you had the Giants. And, and it was funny because I didn't think of East Coast teams, you know, just because they, they weren't in my hemisphere. Uh, but in football, you had the Packers. They had successful team under Vince Lombardi and, and won a lot. You had Johnny Unitas. But, you, you, you know, you think of a kid now – and if a kid is 15 or 16, he probably knows every starting quarterback on every team and, and, and who's a free agent and who's doing. So it, it's more convoluted. You know, for us, I think it was more pure. So, so going to Green Bay, the question you asked about when it got cold, I had to readjust my definition of what I thought cold was. I'm from Los Angeles, played in the Bay Area. Cold might be 50 degrees. In Green Bay, 
it was not cold if it was 20 degrees and the wind wasn't howling because that wind chill is what takes it down. So if it's 20 degrees and, you know, really mild, oh, that's a nice day, you know. But, yeah, so coming from Southern California, it was a badge of honor to play well in the cold and the snow and all that because if you couldn't do that, you were basically missing a quarter of the season because it was going to be cold. It, and everybody always says, oh, it's cold. Well, it's not cold when you go back in August. You have a daytime high of 75 in August. <laughs> right. And and it's it's amazing, too, as I get older, I, I sit there and I think about the things that I really could care less about when I was young. Yeah. You know, going going through the minor leagues and bus trips and sleeping on a couch and playing in Jacksonville, Florida, in the middle of the yeah. summer where it's and we had a turf field and it's 150 on the turf. And I don't remember ever being hot because I didn't care. I was there with one motivation i had my blinders on and it's like the only way i get out of this hot <laughs> is to play better and get to the next level i went to cincinnati yep. and played on that turf and, and there's some humid uh days in the summer but i never really the heat never bothered me because it's like this is what i got to do i've just got to do well so uh, you know i stay here a long time and none of the outside factors that's why when i asked you about the cold i thought you know maybe he he didn't even notice it because he's a rookie in the nfl he's a he's a pro bowler his first year and the last thing we're thinking about is if it's cold or if it's hot it's thinking nope i got to catch footballs and i got to score touchdowns and uh, now as I get older, you know, we're, we're spoiled. So I'll go back east you know, <laughs> in the winter and I'll be like, how do people live here? I, can, yeah. I can't wear my flip flops well, and my shorts. So as we get older, right. we get a little more spoiled. You know, it's funny. I, I played for multiple teams and I had a game a couple of years ago and I was with CBS television and I'm going up to play a game is in um, – in Oakland. So the, the Raiders asked me to come by their store and sign autographs before the game. So they got a picture of me and they're handing out to kids when they come in. I signed the picture. And this little kid goes, he says, that's not a real game. I said, what do you mean it's not a real game? I said, there, there's me. You can see the Miami Dolphins defender. And this is, this is the LA Coliseum. I know there's not fans packed in, but you can see some of the fans in there. He says, no, you don't have on gloves. <laughs> and I, I said, you didn't have to wear gloves, but, but you know, there's a transition just like now you're watching a baseball game and the guy who stands out is that guy who comes into the batter's box with no gloves. And you look at him and go, where are his gloves? Yeah. <laughs> it's a, I, I could, I could, I couldn't imagine hitting without him, but you're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I mean, there's very few that just go in, you know, uh, Back in the 70s, it, it was more yeah. unique. You know, you you watch a Major League Baseball game in the 70s and probably, oh, still mm -hmm. probably about a quarter of the of the hitters would hit with no glove or maybe one glove. Uh, nowadays, yeah. it's very rare to see a guy without glove. There might be two or three, you know, in the big yeah. leagues combined. Mm -hmm. uh, Bart Starr, your first, uh, your first head coach. And Len Dickey, one of the one of the toughest QBs. How important is it that I mean, you had some unbelievable years in in uh, in Green Bay. Uh, 
how important is it to be on the same wavelength with your, I always think about that, about other sports. I always try to figure out what's the most important for me at second base. It, it was important that I had that, that something with my shortstop because we're working together. Sure. We're turning yeah. two together. I had to have that camaraderie. I always think for a wide receiver, it's got to be that quarterback. It's a look without saying anything. It's he's going to be there and I trust he's going to be there and he's there. Uh, did you have that with Len Dickey? You know, it's, it's interesting, and, and I'll, I'll take this back to Stanford. Because I didn't play spring football and I didn't play a lot before my senior year, I didn't realize about developing that chemistry with your quarterback. But what I realize now, as I look back on it, you better catch nine out of the first ten passes you get thrown in practice. If you catch six out of the first ten, I'm talking about balls that, you know, touch your hand. And, and if you catch six out of the first ten, you're probably not going to get thrown to a lot. Because that quarterback has to have confidence in you that you're going to catch the ball, that you're going to be competitive going for it. Uh, because in 1978 when I got drafted, our, our passing tree was so simple. And that passing tree, you draw the routes up, and there were about nine routes. When I was a coach for the San Diego Chargers in 2005, I was drawing up the routes for my receivers. And for the outside receiver, I had 54 different routes. That's how complex the game has become. You know, before, like you say, it was a look, it was a nod, you know, an extra fake here on an out pattern or a square in. But we had really basic routes. So you had better come up with the ball if the ball was going to hit your hands because the quarterback in those days, you know, now the quarterback is protected. You can't hit them below the knees. You can't hit them above the shoulders. Back then, what you heard from the opposing sideline was kill the quarterback. And you heard it repeatedly during the course of the ball game. So what you had to understand as a receiver, if that ball was getting close to you, your quarterback had – had had realized that he was going to be in peril the entire day, so you better come up with it and make plays. And so that's the chemistry that you had to have. You know, now it's all the little extra routes and the little three-yard route with two fakes here, one fake there. So that's a different part of the game. But, yeah, Boone, you've got to come up with that ball or else he's not going to throw it to you. That's a great that's a great point though because it is it's as simple as that it's that quarterback you know psychologically thinking when the going gets tough and I'm in trouble who do I trust the most on that field mm-hmm. and like you said simple things like in practice catching 9 out of 10 yeah. okay yeah. you're going to you're going to start to form a rapport with him it, and 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 I was lucky in my career. I had some great shortstops, and my first couple were Omar Vizquel, and and my second one was Barry Larkin, and we played together for six years. And it was amazing how much we trusted one another. We didn't have to talk about things; we just right. we would do it, and and it made it it upped our game both individually because we had no fear, so we could get, try to make the unbelievable play all the time. Because if we didn't do it. We knew our, I knew my partner was going to pick me up. If I made a bad throw, he was going to make it look like a good throw because of his positioning. So I had no fear. And when you, when you have that kind of confidence in, in your partner, you usually, what do you do? You usually make a perfect throw. 
when I don't trust my partner and I'm thinking, Oh, I better make a perfect throw or yeah. he can't handle it. And I, and I did, I had a couple of couple of years with some guys like that. And it was like, it blew me away. Cause I think I can't play my game because I've got to be so perfect. And boy, I didn't know how good I had it with the, with the first couple shortstops I had in the big leagues. Uh, how nice it was, but you figure that out when you don't have that. But that's really, really a great point that, hey, just by catching balls in practice, we develop that report and we develop that trust. Um, yeah, that's a really cool thing. Uh, in 80, you're a pro bowler again. You, you win, I think you go to six in a row from, from 80 through 85, uh, over, over a thousand yards, five times. Um, and that was the pre, we had him recently on the podcast. We had Brett Favre on and he talked about it. That was before the Favre days and, and a different time in green Bay than, than the green Bay we think of now. Um, when you got traded to the Raiders, you know, you came up there as a kid. I mean, you come out of college, you go there from in, in 1978 and you're there a long time. The NFL to be somewhere from 78 to 86, that's a long time. Yeah. How, how did you feel about leaving Green Bay? Was it time? Was the writing on the wall or, or was it bittersweet? It, you know, it was a, a little bittersweet, but I was getting traded to my hometown team. So the, the kids that I played Pop Warner with, that lived in my neighborhood, that I played high school football with, who, who didn't get a chance to see me play a lot when I played in Green Bay, I had a few friends, three friends actually, who came back to Green Bay once for a game. And so they were kind of my three closest friends. And, and I would talk to them after a game in Green Bay, and I'd say, oh, uh, did you guys see the game? I'd go, no, we, we didn't see it. But, you know, we saw the score afterwards, and you, you caught four passes for 78 yards. And then at that point, because they hadn't seen the game, I could embellish. And Boone, I go, yeah, <laughs> you know, I caught four more. They got called back. Two of them were called back. So, you, you know, you, you get these little stories going. So, all of a sudden, I'm playing games in the L.A. Coliseum. And I've got maybe ten guys who are actually buying their own tickets, bringing their kids, bringing their wife, coming to games. And I'd see them after a game, you know, up the tunnel that comes out of the Coliseum. And they would try and be so nice to me. You know, the Raiders weren't a dominant team at that time. And they would say, you know, that ball that was kind of close to the end zone, did that get tipped when you didn't catch it? <laughs> <laughs> so so your, your, your friends who are not shy about needling you would, would keep you on point that you had to play and you had to play well. And, uh, you know, those two years I was with the Raiders in 87 and 88, um, the one year we had a strike – and I thought I had a pretty good season in uh, in 87. And then the next year, we had four receivers. And we did the oddest thing. I was a starter. I would play eight plays. And then after that, Mervin Fernandez, who came in behind me, would come in for the next eight plays. Then I would play eight plays. And then Mervin would do that. And we did the same thing with Willie Galt and Tim Brown on the other side. So as opposed to having 16-game stats, you now had what were really eight game stats. And so the year before, you know, I was on track for a thousand yards, but we had a short season. And then the next season I caught 28 passes and averaged 21 yards a catch or something like that. And everybody thought, Oh, well, he's done. He's 28 catches. Well, 
only played essentially eight games, so you, you multiply that out, you know, we're over a thousand yards and we're over close to sixty receptions. So, you know, so you you go through that and you try and explain, but nobody wants to hear it when it's not going well. And that that brings me to another point. As a wide receiver, now you've been to at this point you've been to seven Pro Bowls, so your standards are yeah. going to be high. You know, baseball, we have certain things. I have certain goals I set at the beginning of the season. You know, I go into every game. What's the first goal? Goal is to win the game at all costs. But statistically, what do I judge myself on? Well, for me in that generation, you know, I played through the early 2000s. You know, we were based on we were judged based on, well, how how good if you were at a playing a key defensive position, in the middle infield, you know, how good you play defense. That that was kind of the easy part for me. Defense should never take a break. But the offensive side hitting, you know, that's that's hard and it's really hard. So we're judged on basically average. How many home runs did I hit? How many runs yeah. did I drive in? You know, if you're a, if you're a Ricky Henderson at the top of the lineup, how many bases did you steal? What did James Lofton set? What were your goals for the season? Was it touchdowns? Was it yards? Was it yards per carry? Uh, what what would going into a season? What did you want to see? What would you what were the most important numbers for you? Well, it's interesting listening to you and you glossed over playing defense because you said you figured that is what I have to do. And there are a number of infielders who, when that ball is smoking to them on the ground, they don't want to put their body in front of it. You know, you got a guy barreling down at you trying to steal second base and they want to get out of the way. They want to, yeah, you want to swipe tag or whatever. So, it, it's it's the little things. And Bill Walsh, once again, I go back to Bill Walsh. He says, what we need to be able to do is to play a little better than the guy you're playing. Because you, as a receiver, you're out there for 65 or 70 plays a game. And it's not like you're going to dominate every play and, you know, have 50 receptions in one game. You're trying to play a little better when that ball's in your area when you have to block for the runner, when you have to do the little things, do you hustle? When you look at the film on Monday, are you making excuses on certain plays? And you, you want to have a no-excuse game. And that's, that, that's the standard. And the thing about going to the Raiders is they have won world championships. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm looking at Marcus Allen, I'm looking at Howie Long on the other side, you know, why isn't this team winning? And, and I was never one to point the fingers and say, oh, well, the quarterback or the offensive line, because I just didn't know enough about the team at that time. But you're right. It was about my effort. And did I have the effort that I thought was a winning effort? So that, that's what I was really focused on as a player, not really going to the Pro Bowl again, not having a 1,000 yards, not because fantasy football hadn't come in to the four at the time where you talked about your fantasy numbers. So that wasn't even thought of. So it was about winning about giving a winning effort. Yeah. And, and the defensive part for me was when I was a young player, I was coming up in the minor leagues and I was always known as an offensive guy. And I kind of took that personal, like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm yeah. a really good defensive player and I worked so hard at it, but in the, in the scheme of things uh, on, as far as when I came to the ballpark, what was easy for me and what was hard? Well, even on my, when I was at my best, 
hitting was really hard and I had to work at it my best years. I still had to work at it so hard to maintain that because hitting is, is a different entity of itself. Defense. I had gotten to a point where it was, where, where it was easy for me. Now it didn't mean I couldn't, I didn't have to go out there and, and bust it, but man, it was almost like a, like a nice spot for me because in baseball, you're not always going to hit. You know, you're just you're going to have your ruts. You're going to go through a couple weeks where things aren't going your way. You're not seeing the ball. I'm not seeing the spin out of his hand. And that was kind of my like a like a place for me to go instead of of getting so frustrated on the offensive side. I'd, I'd have the attitude. And this comes with, you know, with age and growing up a little bit. Right. You know what? If I'm not getting any hits nobody's getting any hits and I kind of took it personal. So instead of, <laughs> instead of moping yeah. and getting pissed off and throwing everything, I grab my glove and I go defense say, all right, let's go. You're not, there is nothing. This, and it kind of kept me sane through those lean times of hitting. And, and that's what I meant by the defensive side. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it was, if I couldn't play defense, like if I, I just had to be a DH, you know, and I talked to a lot of my buddies, you know, one of my, best friends is Edgar Martinez, one of the best DHs of our time. And we'd have talks about it. And I said, you know, Edgar, I don't know how you do it. If I didn't have defense to, to keep me sane out there because I'm contributing to the team in a positive way when I'm going over four and leaving runners out there, I said, I don't know what I do. I said, how do you deal with it when you're going through a, a slump? Cause there's nothing you can do defensively. He says, uh, well, Booney, I just get on the bike and I ride. <laughs> so I'd catch him in between innings. He'd be on that stationary bike, but uh, yeah, it's amazing the things in sport that we, you know, we figure out as we go through it and, and individual sports, individual people that have individual needs that gets them to focus. And and you said, always be better than that guy I'm going up against. Well, that's a pretty simple way of putting it. Instead of I've got to have certain numbers, maybe your quarterback's doesn't have a good day. He's not, he's not giving you balls that are catchable, but if you just said, I'm running better routes or I'm beating the guy off the ball. I mean, that's a simple way of saying this is this is a way to have a great game. I th- I think it's pretty cool, and I've never heard it put that way. And and you know, there's a little bit of a, and I know this. There's a little bit of a parallel between your career and my career, because late in the career, or kind of our last stop when you were in Seattle, and, and I believe you guys won 116 games. Mm-hmm. And then when I played in Buffalo and we went to three Super Bowls in a row, that type of winning, and, and you, you don't realize it at the moment because you're, you're just going through it every day, but that type of winning doesn't really happen a lot in pro sports. For the most part, you're on those nine and seven teams, seven and nine, or you win 84 games and you, you or you win 78 games the next year. But to, to be at the top of the heap for even if it's one season or a couple of seasons where it is different when you come to work in those environments. And when I went to Buffalo after I left the Raiders, the first year I'm there, I'm just there, you know, Toward the end of the season, I play a minor role. We get to the playoffs, but after that, when you we had we had one season, we played in Super Bowl twenty five, and it was the nineteen ninety season. 
Boone, we were favored. I didn't know this in every game we played. Not not all the home games. Not the games against you know the the, the teams that weren't real good. We were favored in every game we played, all the way through the Super Bowl, which we didn't win. But you know, and to have that type of a team around you, you, you look around the locker room, and you were talking about you know working with you know your your shortstop, and you know when you work in the infield, I'm pretty sure everybody's working together. It, it, it's got to be one glove to keep those balls in the infield, and and then you're talking to the guys who are really throwing the ball into you and relays and different things like that. Well. For us, offense, defense, special teams, and we just had fantastic players on offense, Hall of Famers, Hall of Famers on defense. We had Steve Tasker, who many consider him the best special teams player ever, and we just had ways to win games. And that that's an amazing feeling. You know, then, then then I didn't have to explain to my friends who were living in Los Angeles. I said, I'm on Buffalo now. Look at look at the record. There there it is. It was easy. Isn't it amazing too? I mean, and and I don't know about you, but you know, I had some some pretty good years in Cincinnati where we, we had a really good team. I was on the 1999 uh, Braves team that went to the World Series and lost. And and you mentioned the 2001 Mariners probably the, the most magical year I've ever been a part of. And, and I was, you know, looking back on it, I don't know how we didn't finish the deal, but we didn't. Uh, but it was pretty cool doing it at the, near the end of my career, because I, I think I had a, a more of an appreciation yep. for it. Cause I thought, you know, I, I had fun during that year and I, I had a good time with those guys in the clubhouse and, and, you know, being crazy and being silly. But when, when the smoke cleared and, and you were just there by yourself, you thought how special this is because it's not like you, you put it well, it's not like this all the time. You know, I've had Andre Reed and, and uh, Thurman Thomas, a couple of buddies of mine. We lived, uh, I used to go to Florida in the off season. They were a couple of my neighbors. We've had them on the, on the podcast. And we talked about that. And, and I remember asking Thurman, I said, Thurman, because he was talking about a couple of his of the Super Bowls. He didn't have good Super Bowls. And I said, uh, what about four in a row when people people say you went to four Super Bowls and you lost? And he said, I wouldn't trade that for the world, Brett. He said, I got to f- go to four Super Bowls. And, and he makes a great point. You know, everybody talks about losing uh, the Super Bowl or losing the World Series. Well, it's pretty cool just getting to go to the Super Bowl, just getting to go to the World Series, because not everybody gets to do that. Not I played with some great players that never had that opportunity to get to that, you know, to be the final team in their division standing. And uh, I'm talking great, great players. So I don't know, for me, and, and I've said this before on previous shows, whatever sport it may be, basketball, football, hockey, baseball, at the end of the year, whoever's holding that trophy up, I kind of, just take a snapshot and go, that's really cool. And I hope you guys enjoy it because that's really hard what you're doing right now. And it may never happen again. So uh, I don't know. I think you just added some, some realness to, to what it's like to be on a great team and to really appreciate that. And definitely those Buffalo Bills teams, you know, Marv Levy at the top and you had Jim Kelly and, and Thurman and Andre, yep. as I mentioned. Um, when you went to the Bills, you're coming in as, you know, James Lofton, one of the best, seven-time Pro Bowl. You're coming to the Bills, this great team. You got a young Andre Reid. He's he's a stud. Um, 
what was your take as that veteran James Lofton coming to you knew was a real winning situation and a, and a great team? Well, a lot of times in sports we have that, yeah, but. And this is a, a yeah, but. I was coming in as a guy who was old. I played 11 years in the NFL. Could he still run? Could he still produce? And, and here's a team that was young and really growing with, with a lot of guys who were, you know, 25, 26 years old who are just getting to the, to the prime of their career. So when I, when I got there, you know, my jersey number was number 80. Well, there was already a guy wearing number 80, right? And it's week five of the regular season because I had been at home watching what was going on. I had been released at the end of training camp by the Raiders and was waiting for the phone to ring. Um, the Philadelphia Eagles had called and I went from Los Angeles to Philadelphia. And, and Boone, I took four suitcases. I just knew they were going to sign me. And Buddy Ryan was the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, and I ran the 40 for him. I caught passes. And so I'm sitting in there with the wide receiver coach, and after about an hour, Buddy Ryan sticks his head in the door, and he goes, uh, we're not going to sign you. We don't have the money to sign you. And I said to him, I said, Buddy, make me an offer. I'm out of work. You know, I was, I was my own agent at the time. Makes no offer. They go back home. Uh, about later that week, I'm watching Monday Night Football, and Jim Kelly is on the sideline face-to-face arguing with one of his wide receivers. I said, that's not a good look right there. The guy got cut, got sent to the New York Jets. I got a call. I went back. I tried out with two other lot younger players. Bill signed me. And I think, like, like I said, this is week five. And about week 10, I kind of move into the starting lineup, play a little bit. And we play the Cleveland Browns in the playoffs. And fast forward it to the next year. We're going to play the Philadelphia Eagles the team that didn't sign me. I had five catches for 172 yards and two touchdowns. <laughs> not that I remembered that they didn't sign me, but <laughs> no, not at all. That, that, that little extra motivation as you, as you get a little older. So um, I was, I was a complimentary piece on a really good team. I had a couple of, uh, you, you know, noteworthy seasons while I was there. I had one season where at, at 35, I became the oldest player in NFL history to have a thousand yards in receiving, which Jerry Rice broke. And also the oldest receiver at 35 to be voted to the pro bowl, which Jerry Rice also broke that record. But so it was, it was kind of a magical time uh, because I still did have a little bit left in the tank, but I needed those good pieces around me. And like you said, Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, Andre Reed, Ted Marcher Broder, who was a coach who went with the, the K-gun, no huddle offense, and a, a fantastic offensive line, great defensive players, and Bruce Smith and Cornelius Bennett. Uh, so everything kind of fell into place because if you, if you send me to a team that's struggling at that time, I would have struggled and been gone, and, and that would have been the end of it. But you sent me a team that was, was building and building something special. And I got to step in and assist them a little bit. And we see a lot in the NBA. 
Um, a couple of nights ago, I'm watching Boston play, and Al Horford, veteran player, goes for 30 points. And they're saying, this is his career high, his playoff high. But it was the right timing. And so me playing in Buffalo, it was the right timing. Yeah, what a team you, you were a part of there. Tell me, give me a little bit about the inside. I hear it all the time. What's the Bills Mafia all about? <laughs> well, you know, they didn't have it when I was there, but they, they were in existence already. And right. so you, you played in some great places and you played in some places where you're on the road and those people have the best fan base ever. Yeah. And, and I would say out of the 32 NFL teams, there got to be at least 16 of them that think that they have the best fans ever. And, and in a way they do. Um, and the Bills fans were, were no different. You talk about the Packer fans, fanatical. You talk about Raider Nation, fanatical. Uh, and then you, you, you toss in a good team, and it makes it really special. The uh, Buffalo Bills, after those Jim Kelly teams, kind of some lean years, they flirted with the playoffs a few times, but now they have Josh Allen. And so a lot of true believers in that team. And, um, you know, so I see the the specialness of the NFL as a broadcaster in getting to watch fan bases get excited. Um, You know, if I I were to say that the Houston Texans have a great fan base, you might kind of roll your eyes a little bit. But when J.J. Watt was playing there and they introduced him, he ran out of the tunnel with the American flag, chills up and down your spine. And when, when you go to Cleveland and you're an opposing player and you're, you're down near the dog pound, which is one part of the end zone, and those, when those fans are so nice, you know what they do during pregame warm-ups? They toss dog biscuits to you. <laughs> <laughs> now, they actually pelt, pelt you with dog biscuits, but – so you you get a ton of fan bases. You go to Pittsburgh and you watch those terrible towels go. Uh, the, the NFL is pretty special. Yeah, and I, and I think the NFL is. I mean, baseball has its has its time and has its moments and has its cities, but I think the NFL yeah. as a whole, it's just a different animal. The the, the NFL fans are just a different animal. Uh, well, I well, think we, we are in across the we board. are in the San Diego area. The t- the two of us. And, right. and you see this swell growing for the Padre fans. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can go up to my local supermarket, and, and if I'm in that store going through the list that my wife gave me for the 40 minutes trying to get all the specials, that I won't see somebody in Padre gear now. And, and that wasn't the case four or five years ago. So there, there's an excitement when the front office puts a good product on the field. Now, now some of the franchises have been great for a long time. And, and, you know, so it's a given in those areas and those areas are so large, but in San Diego, where it seems like everybody's from somewhere else and a lot of Padres fans here now. Yeah, it's cool to see. And, and, you know, it started a few years ago and, and uh, this with Machado signing and Hosmer and, mm-hmm. and now 
know, yeah. the Tatis Jr. You know, he's kind of a, he's kind of a rock star. I mean, he's he's a special talent. I've watched him pretty closely for the last year and a half. Obviously, he's out right now, and he's he's going to be coming back later in the season. But uh, he's definitely that that guy you put up front and and can carry that franchise because he's he's a one in one in a million talent. They're off to a good start this year. We'll see what happens. Yeah. 1993, go to L.A. and Philly, and uh, then you call it a career. 764 receptions, 14,004 yards, and, and you were the first in, in NFL history to get 14,000. I'm sure who came along. Was it Jerry Rice? <laughs> he, yeah, he was, he Jerry was taking, Rice all your other, yeah. taking all your other records. <laughs> uh. Yeah, what a career. Uh, 1999, the Packers honor you uh, as a Hall of Famer with the Green Bay Packers. And, and that wasn't the big one, but that's pretty cool. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty awesome franchise and a long list of, of great players. In 99, when you get that phone call and, and you figure, you know, that, that's just part of, of course, what you did in Green Bay, you're going to be a part of their Hall of Fame. But when you get the phone call officially and say, you're in. Was that a pretty cool moment? I know the the real one's coming up a little bit later, but in '99 when you get that call, was that special? It, it it really was, and and maybe not so much for me, but for for my family, because when I retire in '93, my oldest son is eight years old, and then the next one is five, and I think our daughter is you know two and a half, so they didn't really get to experience a ton of my NFL career. So this was kind of an, an awakening for them uh, to say, Dad was pretty good, huh? And so they got to be part of all those uh, events at that Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame, and it was really special. Uh, a guy who was my roommate, uh, Mike Douglas, who lives out in El Cajon here in San Diego, uh, was my presenter, and uh, he's in the Packer Hall of Fame now, so you know, we got to present each other going in and that was, that was great. He went in a couple of years later. So it, it was kind of a nice way to kind of tie up my Green Bay career. Uh, 2002 to 2008, uh, we, you'd mentioned earlier, <clears throat> you got first time uh, get some coaching experience. You're the wide receiver coach for the Chargers. And in 09, uh, you go over to the Raiders. I got to I got to coach for a couple of years in the minor leagues, not not in the big leagues, and I actually preferred the minor leagues. It's in baseball. Uh, I love getting the kids. You know, you're expected to the teaching's over when you get to the big leagues. The minor leagues is where you're right. teaching and forming, and I really like that aspect. I mean, I really enjoyed seeing these A-ball guys go to double A and then three years later, they're in the big leagues and five years later, they're at the all-star game. And it's pretty cool seeing their progression. Um, did you enjoy the coaching side of it? What are the pros and cons for you? I, I loved it. Um, the, like you said, working with a, a young player, whether he's a first round pick or a guy that you got to come there as a free agent, he signs, you, you instruct them, you, you teach them the little things. And when you're working on something that you believe is part of being a technically sound player and they pull it off in a game, it's like, it's like you're a parent and you're beaming with pride. 
we had a guy by the name, my first year by the name of Curtis Conway. And Curtis Conway was a terrific player at USC. I, I watched him play in high school, actually. When I was playing for the Raiders, he was at Hawthorne High School, and they had one of the best teams in the nation. He was on the uh, fastest relay team, just a terrific athlete. But you know what? He only carried the ball in his right arm. And so I said, Curtis, if, if you could carry the ball in your left arm as you're going up the sideline where that's on the boundary arm, you'd be able to stiff arm somebody and pick up an extra five or ten yards. So I had drills where, you know, put the ball away from traffic, put it in, which essentially meant put it in your opposite arm. And the other thing I would tell the receivers, I said most of you guys were, you know, high school quarterbacks. So I don't want you to catch a long pass and throw the ball back in. I want you to put the ball in your non-dominant arm and rub the numbers off your jersey and bring it, bring it back. So that was something we did. So we're playing somebody in Qualcomm Stadium. Curtis catches a ball going from the right to the left, and then he's going to turn up the field. He switches the ball into his left arm. He guy comes over to tackle him. He stiff arms him with his right arm, right on the helmet, picks up another 15 yards, turns around, and as he gets pushed out of bounds by the next one, comes, drops that ball, and jumps into my arms. God, I did it. I did. So it was that little thing. And this was a guy who was in his 10th year. And so you, you teach this old dog a new trick, and, and it's special. And the same way with your younger players. If you can get them to play with that edge, to play with that attitude that Bill Walsh had a little bit harder than the other guys willing to play. And, and at the receiver position, that's essential because the defensive back is the, the tough physical guy. He's going to tackle, he's going to knock you down, and, and where the guy's going to catch the ball and try and get out of the way. But if you can get your guys to be a little more physical than the other team, you've, you've got a huge edge on everybody that you play against. And, and I, I love watching players play with that standard. And they may not – you know, have it explained in the same way that it was explained to me. But when I'm watching a game, it's so much fun watching an offensive lineman battle, you know, great pass rusher, watching a linebacker take on a fullback or a guard. So that, that, that little instant at the point where you have to be trying to be a little bit tougher and a little bit smarter and have better technique than the guy you're going up against. Yeah, that had to be a cool moment. That might have brought a tear to your eye. I mean, it's just like, wow, he's, he's, a pre- he's appreciative of something little. I gave him something little. He did it. He made the catch. He made the transition. But if I had a little part, and, and he was proud to come back and show me, like, hey, I did it. That That is what it's all about from the teaching side, and I think that's really cool. Uh, 2009, you joined uh, the guy that I had up in Seattle, Dave Sims, for Sunday Night Football. Uh, and you've been kind of on that side of the ball for. A, go ahead. He's he's the best too, Dave Sims. Dave Sims, yeah. Um, in 2017, your color analyst for CBS to to present day. Um, <clears throat> I got a question. What does a sideline reporter do? And now you're James Lofton. You're on the sidelines. You got all the credentials right. in the world. Is that when you first did it? Was it awkward? You know, so I'll go back to the very first job I had on TV, 1993, after I retired, I go to CNN, and we had a show called NFL Preview. And Mm -hmm. at that time, 
the pregame shows were all either 30 minutes or one hour. So we were on just like everybody else, like Fox was, like NBC, like CBS was, for just a half an hour or maybe even an hour. But I'm thinking in my mind, man, if I could get a job over at ESPN or at NBC or at CBS, then, then I'd really be, you know, in the big time of broadcasting. So after we had done the pregame show, I go over to uh, the Georgia Dome to watch the Falcons play. And because, you know, we're going to have a wrap-up show a little bit later, so I'm going to catch some of the Falcons game in person. So I'm, I'm actually down on the sideline. And I see one of my uh, former teammates up in the stands. He goes, Lofton, Lofton, hey, come on over, come on over. And he goes, man, how did you get that job at CNN? And, and right there, Boone, I realized that – these jobs in the NFL and NBA and Major League Baseball, talking about something that we love doing, are like gift jobs. Because somebody has to kind of give them to you. You know, yeah, you might have had a, a great career or you might have you know, gone to broadcasting school or done this, but somebody has to give the job to you. You know, it's not like when you're playing and you earn your spot. And And when he said that, what I realized is that this is a job that other people want. And so as I, as I look at the, the broadcasting world, it'd be really easy to say, oh, I'd love to be doing the A game. But to, to be in this and, you know, one of the <laughs> tongue-in-cheek things that people used to say, when you're a player, that's the best thing. If you can't play, why don't you coach? And then they say, if you can't coach, why don't you find somewhere you can go talk about it? So, you know, I'm at that stage now where I'm talking about it, and it, it's a blast. Go back to 2003, and this is the big one. You, you get that phone call, and I, and I always like to, to ask the Hall of Famers, on that day, you, you get the call to the, to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, take me through it. Well, I was actually down at Balboa Park. And um, the Super Bowl was in San Diego that year, so there's some stuff going on down there. And I'm getting ready to go on a show with Ron Thulin and Emmett Smith. And what's funny is Ron Thulin had been my play-by-play guy when I was doing Big 12 football for Fox Sports Net. And my, my big brick cell phone rang. The white one with the Gotta with the go. black antenna. Yep. Yep. And they go, this is the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We're calling it. And, and after that, it's kind of just foggy. Because two years prior, I had been a 15 finalist. And then the next year, I'm not in the final 15. And I remember watching TV with my son, David, and he's going, Dad, they, they forgot to mention your name. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm now a, a Hall of Fame selector, so I understand the process and who makes the final 15 and who. Does. And sometimes you're going to make it, and you might get skipped the next year and then be in like I was. Um, but it it was it was really special, to say the least. Um, and it was different for me as a player. I played in the Hall of Fame games. So I knew a little bit about the Hall of Fame. But you you think about the NFL draft now. 
such a big production that it's almost like the finish line for these guys, and they're just about to start their career. And then every once in a while you hear somebody throw out, oh, he's going to be a great player for the next 10 or 12 years. He could be a Hall of Famer. What a (laughs) huge burden to, to hang on somebody or to have that expectation level. Now, the player may want to be great. They may want to win championships, but let's not just toss around the Hall of Fame that lightly on players because the Hall of Fame is about an accomplishment over a number of years, not just about potential. Pretty cool. What are you most proud of? Um, Well, at this stage, my oldest son, David, and his wife, Emily, they have our three grandkids. And our oldest grandson, Jackson, he, the last weekend he had a track meet. He had a uh, flag football game. And he, played, and he pitched in a doubleheader. Now, his little sister won the long jump at a track meet and won 100 meters. And they're holding back the five-year-old. They haven't started him in organized sports other than soccer. Um, so it, it's funny. There, there's no greater thrill than watching somebody you care about compete. And so that was my kids. It was my, it's my grandkids. But it's also the young players who are playing now. The Hall of Fame, Pro Football Hall of Fame, sent me out last year to – see this guy, Elijah Moore, who was out of the University of Mississippi, to go down to Arizona to meet with him, film a little segment with him. And so I became his, quote, Hall of Fame mentor. Well, Elijah Moore was a second-round pick with the New York Jets, and, and I got to call one of his games last year where he had two touchdowns, a touchdown rushing and a touchdown receiving. So to be able to have that connection with players who are playing now and there's a few players that, you know, were in the league when I was finishing up who are really old now. Um, but to have that connection of guys that you might have coached or worked with or that you might have worked with before the NFL draft is, is special. So just to be connected to it, that, to the game, that's the best thing that I could have ever wanted. James Lofton, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. Uh, a lot of fun. What an unbelievable career. You've done it all. Coaching, broadcasting, uh, Hall of Fame on the field. Uh, and what we do each and every Boone Podcast at the end of the podcast is we bring back the voice, and that would be Dan Levy. Dano. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.